Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show for Friday, December the 18th. If I was to say this show is brought to you by a letter, it would be the letter S because we're going to wrap the show up with an interview about sex shops and why they should be considered essential businesses. And we'll start off the podcast with two interviews involving scientists and researchers. One is a game changer. A test has been approved by the FDA that would allow men with prostate cancer probably better outcomes for survival. So we'll get to that right after we focus on a local story. And Ateria Lab is working to develop needle-free COVID-19 vaccines. And I love this idea for people that are frightened of you know, getting vaccinated via the needle. And, you know, we saw this story where the second person to get vaccinated might not have got vaccinated because uh, some of the dosage leaked out of the vial when that went onto their arm. And so they might have to be re-vaccinated with uh, the first dose all over again. A little bit of a mulligan, as it were. Um, but associate professor at the University of Waterloo School of Pharm- Pharmacy, Dr. Roderick Slavchev, joins the show right now to talk about what the the University of Waterloo is working on. Welcome to the program. Good to have you on. Thanks very much. Thanks very much for having me. So why, I guess the first question is, beyond the fact that some people have needle aversion, uh, why do we need a needleless, needleless option? Well, for us, it was actually, there, there are a couple of reasons. So obviously, the non-invasive route is, is preferable for, for a number of individuals, but also it's uh, the route of administration that would be intranasal in this respect also provides um, exposure of the right viral antigens to the right uh, immune tissue that can polarize the right type of immune response and be particularly beneficial um, as protection against uh, viral uh, infections. Okay, so in English, basically, this is almost like a prophylactic. It, it hits the target. Well, for us, actually, the vaccine has two strategies. So as I mentioned, you, you're, you're targeting the right immune tissue um, within the nose, but also you're getting to the, uh, to the respiratory tissue. So it almost mimics the route of infection that you would see for SARS-CoV-2. Hmm. Um, and, upon, and upon doing so, you get the right type of immune response and also local immune responses that could be the most protective in protecting against respiratory-type viruses like SARS-CoV-2. And so you were working on this and trying to come up with a vaccine uh, via nasal spray before coronavirus reared its head, or at least this this uh, novel coronavirus, COVID-19. What were you working on trying to, you know, get a vaccine going for the flu? Well, no, actually, it was more of a we work on therapeutic platforms. So it was, it's a bit of an interesting story in that a lot of the work that we do, um, working with bacteriophages and working with the genetic elements that come from these bacterial viruses, um, working with a few of my colleagues, we came to the conclusion that, you know, as labs were getting shut down and, and we were sort of suffering the consequences, as many were, of COVID-19, that we actually had all the tools necessary to be able to do something about it. And in so doing, just quickly mobilized and started working quickly on whatever we could do towards this vaccine and came up with a with an intranasal spray as a sort of administration strategy for what then has also a novel strategic uh, approach. So as you mentioned, the prophylactic approach to how this vaccine works, um, this, this vaccine intends to not only be prophylactic, and that means just protective and provide the right immune response um, to protect against SARS-CoV-2, but also be therapeutic. And that means that it can even block the receptors that SARS-CoV-2 
um, needs in order to infect cells, and in so doing can also have a therapeutic purpose at the same time as being prophylactic. Okay, it's the morning, so sometimes it's a lot to take in, especially when you're talking to a scientist that knows a lot about uh, things that the average person doesn't. But you at the Water, uh, University of Waterloo, are you focused on, and, and perhaps I'm being a little obtuse here, are you focused on a delivery method um, for, you know, when it comes to the nasal spray? Or is it not just the delivery method, but you're actually working on a new vaccine as well? Like the Pfizer yeah. vaccine is one type of vaccine. The Moderna is another type. Uh, there's various types that are being worked on. So are you working on a new vaccine? Exactly. It's a new vaccine platform. So the way you mentioned for Moderna and Pfizer, these are RNA-based vaccines. So ours also is a nucleic acid approach using DNA instead of RNA. Um, And in so doing, um, it also mimics the structure that would be developed. So i.e. the DNA would get into the necessary cells and would generate the viral products. These viral products would assemble into something that mimics the structure of a SARS-CoV-2 virus. And in so doing, although extremely safe and unable to replicate, would allow all of the right proteins to be produced to provide the right protective response. And I guess it's key when you say there, it's it's a DNA mutation, it's unable to replicate is the important point to stress here, because I think a lot of people have been getting misinformation about vaccines, and they're worried about it somehow changing their DNA. That's not what we're talking about oh, here. Oh, no, 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 not at all, not at all. So, I mean, all of these nucleic acid vaccines are really, the concept behind them is to get into cells and to allow for a viral component to be generated. And that viral component then can stimulate the right type of an immune response and provide protection. In itself, it has no capability of replicating at all, not even close. So your your uh, trials are in preclinical stage right now. So what will it take to get to the clinical stage? Would we be able to develop and, and produce this vaccine in Canada? And how quickly could we get it out there? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, these are these are questions that we don't necessarily have the answers to as well. Um, obviously, we're working as fast as we can through the preclinical stage to try to get this to the clinical stage. I, I think what's also really important here is that you have a number of global uh, global approaches to try to work on vaccines. Some of these are conventional, but some of them are actually novel new type of vaccine platforms. And that's where I think you're going to see a lot of added value, because although they may not be the first to come out the door toward dealing with COVID-19 itself, you're going to see a great deal of impact and novel types of technologies that can have a lot of impact on future infectious diseases. And that's where I think you're going to see some, some really some future value addition uh, to this entire endeavor. Now, you know, if you listen to the show regularly, I am a a bit of a science nerd, but I also really like stories that are relatable. And I think that this this headline uh, caught my eye about a new prostate test. And so I am so excited to have uh, uh, one of the doctors that's working on this uh, test on the program with me now. Now, before I get to the doctor, I have to tell you, I was so looking forward to this interview that I actually dreamed about it. That doesn't happen to me a lot, but I it, this did, really did creep into my dreams because I think this is a really big story and I think it has legs to really change lives. So for many men with aggressive prostate cancer, the big question remains, are there any cancer cells outside the prostate? And if so, how do you locate them? The Food and Drug Administration has approved a test that can locate prostate cancer cells wherever they are in the body. Here to talk about it, Dr. Thomas Hope, a nuclear medicine physician at the University of California, San Francisco. Welcome to the show, doctor. I am so pleased you had time for us. 
excited to be here. I was reading that the chair of uh, urology at the uh, University of Virginia School of Medicine said this is the most exciting thing in prostate cancer in my lifetime. Would you agree? Um, well, I can't speak for Dr. Green, but I think it's a very exciting thing for patients and physicians treating patients with prostate cancer because, as you mentioned earlier, you know, one of the biggest issues in patients who have aggressive and metastatic prostate cancer is to localize it. If you don't know where the disease is, it's very hard to decide how to treat that patient properly. So I think it really does make a huge difference in, in the ability to treat prostate cancer patients properly. Before we get into the specifics of the test and how it works, this was based on years of research. Um, bef- could we start at um, a situation that I think a lot of men can relate to, a lot of people that uh, love these men can relate to? It's how most men learn they have prostate cancer and where in the past this has led you as far as treatment. Yeah, so most men who get diagnosed with prostate cancer is diagnosed on what's called a truss biopsy. <laughs> this is where they stick a needle uh, through your rectum into your prostate. Sounds like a wonderful procedure. Um, It comes back and gives you a pathologic diagnosis. So uh, maybe you had a high PSA or an abnormal digital rectal exam. Your physician says, oh, go get a biopsy. They put a needle into the prostate. It comes back cancer. So this gives you something called a Gleason score, which is sort of a a score. The higher the number, the more aggressive the tumor, et cetera. Um, Most patients actually have a low-grade tumor, a very low-risk cancer. And and most patients who have prostate cancer don't die from prostate cancer. They they live with this low-grade cancer and and end up passing from something else. But a significant portion of them have what we call high-grade prostate cancer. And in those patients, those patients will undergo definitive therapy, radiation therapy, or prostatectomy to remove the prostate. And in those patients, the question really is, before you undergo these definitive treatments, do you have cancer that's already metastasized? Is it outside of the prostate? And that's where this test comes in. It doesn't help as much in the initial diagnosis. That's still going to remain in the realm of biopsies and getting tissue. But then in the patients with higher risk prostate cancer, it can help us determine where the disease is. Okay, so tell us how the test works. Yeah, so this is a radiopharmaceutical. Uh, so it's a really it's a small molecule that's radioactive. We label it with a small amount of gallium-68. This is a molecule or an atom that gives off a positron that we can then image using a scanner called a PET-CT. So this it's a little bit of a cool technology, but it's used all the time in patients with cancer. But typically, we inject radioactive sugar or glucose, and cancer cells take up this FDG or radioactive sugar because they use a lot of sugars, and we can localize the cancer. But prostate cancer doesn't take up this other drug, the radioactive sugar, and so we needed to find a new agent. And this agent is a small molecule that was designed to bind to a protein that's on prostate cancer cells, uh, shockingly called prostate-specific membrane antigen or PSMA. And so we take this molecule, which we've labeled or other people have named PSMA-11, attach the radioactivity into it. You inject it into a patient. You wait an hour. It circulates in the body, binds to the prostate cancer cells, localizes into those cells. And then we image the patient using this scanner called a PET-CT to see where the radioactivity went. I'm not sure if that made sense, but that's the general idea. Yeah, I think it made a lot of sense. I I was following along. Hopefully other people were following along as well. Um, So once it has found the radioactive uh, or once this radioactive tag has has found the the cell uh, and you can see it on the imaging machine, then I imagine you can just uh, target that part of the body before the cancer migrates even further. 
Yeah, that's the hope. So in patients, uh, as I said, uh, initial staging, if they have, uh, we use these terms, oligometastatic disease, so just one or two sites of metastases, then you can try to target those metastases with external beam radiation therapy. And trials are being done right now to try to understand how that can potentially lead to cures or improve patients' outcomes. Um, because we, we've got the agent, and we've shown the agent works very well in localizing the disease. We haven't yet studied the effect, how the outcome of the patient has improved as well. So that is something we need to work on. But, yes, yeah, so once you've localized the disease, then you can potentially target it with radiation. Now, the problem is sometimes patients have more than two metastases, uh, maybe 10 or 15, and those patients obviously won't be a candidate for this external beam radiation uh, where you're sort of zapping each individual lesion, and then those patients have to go to systemic therapy. So it really depends on the distribution and localization of the disease that determines what type of treatment would be best for the individual patient. Now, I understand the FDA has uh, given limited approval for your your test. So what do you have to, uh, what hoops do you have to jump through to, uh, I guess, uh, reassure the FDA that maybe this test should be used um, beyond just your facility? Yeah, so the limited approval is an interesting circumstance. So this uh, new drug application was actually done by UCSF and UCLA. Uh, so when you when you get a drug approved in the United States, it's approved at a manufacturing facility, um, and as sort of obvious, UCSF and UCLA were academic institutions. We don't sell or distribute drugs to other sites, and also gallium sixty eight has a half life of sixty eight minutes, so you can't really ship it very far uh, because it decays too quickly. Um, so the approval was only at our sites because that's how it got approved. Uh, but now, once it's approved, other companies or institutions can then reference it. So we didn't make it proprietary. So we purposely okay. made it, as in essence, it got approved as an immediate generic so that anyone can now apply to make it at their institution. So, yes, yeah, it is definitely only available currently uh, at our two institutions, but we hope that very quickly that will change. And there's a number of paths for that to happen, different companies who make kits, companies who actually sell the radiopharmaceuticals, or other large institutions who want to make it themselves can now have access to this. Uh, but there is a paperwork trail that has to happen first. Is that the difference between big pharma developing a drug and uh, uh, an institute like yourself developing a, a drug? Uh, big pharma might make it pri- uh, proprietary? Yeah, well, if you're a company, you want it proprietary so that you can sell it, right? So you, mm-hmm. you own the rights to the drug. Um, when you're in academia, that's not, you know, I, don't, I don't get a bonus or a, a bigger paycheck because I got a drug approved. So it's, <laughs> the financial benefit doesn't, you know, not, not the motive to actually get these drugs approved. So that, that's just a different circumstance. But it's also not common. Uh, there's probably only been two other drugs ever approved by academia alone without industry. So this, this is, it's not a, like, I can't say this is how it always happens because it doesn't happen frequently enough. Wow, that's fascinating. This test could save a lot of lives. Um, if you're just joining us now, the test basically relies on radioactive tagging on a molecule, and it basically homes in on the prostate cancer cells, which could have been anywhere in the body, and, and allows um, researchers to see um, via, you know, radioactive uh, spotlights, as it were, I guess, for lack of a better uh, term, to see where the cancer, if at all, has spread in the body. Now, you're working and you're hoping to use this technique and take things a lot farther, basically to seek and destroy. Can you tell us where, you know, version 2.0 could go? Yeah, that is a really interesting idea, and it's moving forward quite quickly. The world likes to call it theranostics. It's sort of a conjoining of the word therapy and diagnostics. So you can use this small molecule, the PSMA molecule, to carry radioactivity into the cancer. 
Uh, right now, what the FDA approved is a way to image the cancer with that radioactivity. But if you swap the radioactivity out for something different, uh, an example would be lutetium-177. Uh, it's a molecule that decays by giving off an electron. Uh, and so if you get enough of lutetium into the tumor, you can actually kill the tumor as well. And so there's trials uh, that actually completed phase three last August for enrollment. Uh, and we're waiting to hear out from the results of that to see whether or not that will get approval for treating of patients with prostate cancer. So uh, lutetium PSMH therapy has a lot of potential, and there's, there's a ton of work being done trying to optimize that and develop that moving forward. Well, doctor, based on uh, what you're working on and the hope that it delivers, I have to say uh, it is a coincidental, na- a coincidental name you have, Dr. Hope, um, <laughs> when it comes to men with prostate cancer. What a great, a great story, and I really appreciate your time and letting us uh, into, uh, you know, just have a little insight into what you're doing at the uh, University of California, San Francisco. No problem. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. You have a great day. That's Dr. Thomas Hope, a nuclear medicine physician at the University of California, San Francisco. A lot of hope for men with prostate cancer. I mean, that is one of the big worries. Is it, has it left and migrated from the prostate to another area in my body? Imagine being able to know that. And then imagine in the future being able to deliver the payload to destroy it right to that area of the body, right to the cell. It's fascinating stuff. Veronica Casalias joins us, the owner of the Nookie Shop, to tell her story about survival and how difficult it is during COVID-19, especially when you're located in Toronto, like the Nookie is. And um, you've just been given a ticket, according to uh, uh, the owner of the shop, by a bylaw officer, it, although you have been deemed an essential service. She joins the show now. Hi, Veronica. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. How hard has it been for you guys to operate during the pandemic? Honestly, we've been one of the lucky businesses um, who've been pretty resilient and who've had a lot of support from our community. But I mean, that is um, because we are also, there's very limited options for purchasing the kinds of products that we sell. Um, And despite what bylaw might think, they are actually essential to a lot of people. Okay, so so what what is the Nookie? Let's start there. Um, Sanuki is a sensuality shop. So it is a shop. I have a master's degree in psychology and I'm a former um, healthcare executive from Alberta. So um, I have a really health-based focus on sexuality. And so I opened a shop um, focused on healthy representations of sexuality. So we sell, um, well, sex toys. We sell vibrators. We sell a range of safety devices like dental dams, toy cleaner, condoms. Um, gloves, lubricant. We do workshops. Um, I've guest lectured at the University of Toronto. I've taught at the Lindhurst Rehab Hospital for spinal cord injury patients for how to maintain intimacy. Um, Hmm. So I really consider us more of a sexual wellness center. I mean, sex shop would be the most um, easy to grasp concept of it, but I do actually feel like that's quite a representation. I think a lot of people, when they hear sex shop, think porn shop with, you know, peep shows in the back. Um, and that is not at all what, frankly, most modern sex shops do, but it's certainly not at all what we do. Um, so that's a very long-winded way of saying that I help support people's sexual health. I, I was reading that you uh, there is approval for your shop on the Stop Spread Hotline. Can you tell us about the, what the uh, Stop the Spread Hotline is? 
Yeah, so the South Detroit Hotline is a provincial hotline where businesses can phone and just basically get support, get answers, um, get clarification about operations. Okay. Um, so that is what the South Detroit Hotline was. Um, and so, again, there seems to be con- some confusion because, you know, quote-unquote sex shops aren't on the list um, of approved businesses. But, frankly, I wouldn't expect them to be. Sex shops are famously difficult to define. In fact, the city went to court with another sex shop about 10 years ago over trying to define what a sex shop was because they wanted to zone it out of an area. Um, and it was agreed that it's too nebulous of a definition. I mean, if you're just saying appeals to sexual appetites, well, I mean, shoe stores appeal to sexual appetites when it comes right down to it. Um, so it does become very difficult to define. Um, so again, it, then in this case, it becomes about the products that you sell. And so um, retailers of medical supplies or devices qualify as these safety mm-hmm. supply stores. Um, and so, I mean, a, there's a lot of, it seems, consensus, at least amongst the Toronto Public Health people I spoke to, um, some people I spoke to at Bylaw and the Stop the Spread hotline, that things like, frankly, in modern-day sex toys as well, qualify as safety supplies when Dr. Tam is telling people to stay home and masturbate. And mm-hmm. Toronto Public Health has also put out an official COVID document about sexual wellness that also tells people um, that masturbation is the safest way to have a gratifying um, sex life during COVID. So there's the sex toy aspect, but there are also um, aspects like dental dams, toy cleaner, condoms, um, lubricant, and then things like vaginal dilators that are used by cancer patients post-radiation. They're used after people have had gender reassignment surgery. There's other items um, that are gender identity based that are sold at quote-unquote sex shops that are important to people, um, that there just aren't other places to get them. And so that's what we're there to support. Um, I, the argument, I suppose, could be made that you can get those. You know, you can, John Tory was on CBC last night saying you can get condoms anywhere. Um, mm. But it's a much bigger issue than that. And it's not also just an issue of curbside because not everybody wants some of these items, frankly, delivered to their house. There's still a lot of, I mean, the fact that I'm having this fight right now shows how much stigma there is around these products. Um, and so some people want to be able to come in and purchase these products with cash discreetly, not have them in the mail, not have them on their credit card statement. And that's fair. And when Toronto Public Health is putting out documents outlining the importance of safe sex during COVID, people should be supported in their ability to go out and actually get products that would allow them to do that. Yeah. And let's talk about that for a minute, because a, a condom is rather limiting if that's your only option when it comes to a drugstore, because, you know, not everybody's having sex with a male. Exactly. Um, Exactly. And even when it comes to things like dental dams, gloves, finger condoms. And the thing is, I mean, Toronto Public Health and the CDC have put out arguments saying use these things, have barriers. We know that um, COVID can be found in feces. And so, I mean, you can get gloves at other places, but I do also think that coming into a shop that's focused on sexual wellness helps refocus people on the importance of using these products for sex. Um, And so it is. You take the shame out of it. And so they feel more comfortable using it to keep them safe. Exactly. And it's not even it's even just getting them thinking about it. Right. It's like, oh, yeah, like, I guess maybe I should be using these things in that context as well. Um, I mean, we've even based on CDC saying, you know, keep barriers. We've even brought in face shields, like all of these things that will just in a new context remind people um, that there is something going on that they need to be taking extra precaution of. And let me just add this in, if I could. Um, The reason why we've got you on the line is because you have been served a ticket by, uh, you were issued a fine by Toronto bylaw, and I'm going to get to that in a second, but I think it's, uh, it's very important to punctuate. There's a lot of people dealing with anxiety right now, and some of your products would help to alleviate their, their anxiety. 
Uh, well, so exactly. I mean, the opening of Toronto Public Health COVID document is consensual, consensual sex can be a way of dealing with anxiety. That, that This is like medically acknowledged. And so this is just it. Um, it's, it's, I mean, what a time to be alive when major health officials are telling people to stay home and use sex toys. But I mean, mm-hmm. that is where we're at right now. And they absolutely can be. And this is kind of the thing that I'm finding the most frustrating. And How many people would you say are, are, are deciding to go that route? Because I'm hearing a lot from uh, people that are single that they're still going online and, and uh, you know, meeting up with people on those dating apps. Well, I mean, my perspective on that would be really biased because obviously the people that are coming into my shop have made the choice that that's not what they're going to do. Um, right. So they're coming in expressly because they, they need to get off um, and they aren't willing to go out and do it with other people for whatever reason. So, so I mean, well, I, we're in a I'm, plague and pandemic exactly, situation. That's exactly. probably the reason. Yeah. So, so I'm, I, I couldn't say because my people have decided that they're not going to do that. Um, and so they are coming in for that kind of thing. But exactly. I mean, even if people aren't using sex toys because they have a spinal cord injury, or um, they've just had a child or they have menopause. I mean, using them solely for pleasure still makes them legitimate health supplies. Let's talk about the Toronto bylaw uh, incident that um, happened. When did that occur and what went down? Because I think it's an interesting story and I have a feeling just based on conversation we've been having, you'll tell it, tell it in a, a way that's, you know, really colorful and interesting. Sure. So, um, so I, I've at first contacted the Soft Spread Hotline, and also safety supply stores are listed as essential businesses. And to me, that is what I do. Um, so I stayed open. I made sure I had all the extra supplies, um, and then by law, I expected them to get called because people, frankly, think that women orgasming is going to lead to like the end of the world. So I wasn't surprised somebody called them, um, but I was surprised they showed up and said that I had to shut down. So they did that first. Um, I had a conversation with them. We offered to show them the Toronto Public Health document. They weren't having any of it. They basically scoffed. Sex shops, you know, we're not allowing sex shops. The guy came in to hand out the notice when he wasn't even wearing a mask. And then my employee witnessed them laughing when they were walking away from the shop. So this is the kind of respect that my industry and sexual wellness got. Um, so the bylaw that- officer entered your, your place of business without a mask on? Sure did. Yeah, to hand out a notice wow. that I was violating the act by doing what the Stop the Spread hotline told me I was allowed to do. Um, so after they left, I consulted a lawyer. Um, I read the full legislation myself and saw that medical supplies and devices were also on it, which to me then does become a no-brainer. Like some of the products that I sell are even like covered through health benefits, quite frankly. So like this to me was a no-brainer. People are going to be going through their health benefits after this show and looking to see what I qualify for. Hang on a minute. Oh. It's the gender identity products, the things okay. like hackers, um, dilators for post-op. So yeah, it's those kinds of things. Um, but yeah, so we didn't hear from them for about a week. Chris, you can close that. our dock now. Go ahead and close it up. Sorry. That's right. That, that, um, was, a, that was an aside. It was a joke based okay. on the fact that we won't be checking our... Benefit package. Sorry. Um, um, sorry. So, yeah. So then I, I didn't hear from them for a week. So I assumed mm-hmm. that they, frankly, educated themselves. And then they came back a week later and handed me a ticket, even though, again, the first time they said the next thing would be a summons to appear, which honestly I was fine with because I'm not breaking the law. So if they want to have me stand in front of a judge and say that, I'm okay with that. Um, and then, no, they showed up with a fine. So that's mm-hmm. when I phoned the COVID unit at Toronto Public Health and the person I spoke to, at, who also then spoke to the manager of the COVID unit agreed 100% that my products count as essential items, that they are essential. Um, and like they encouraged me to fight. They sent me an email with a list of resources to fight the city that included like the ombudsman, the MLS complaint line, who my city councillor is, a link to their fact sheet document. So they 
fully backed me up. And then yesterday, CBC phoned the media rep, and all the media rep said was sex shops aren't on the list, which, again, is like a complete hmm. 180, but it also, it's not even the point. Nobody said that they were. I didn't say that they were. The people I spoke to at the COVID unit didn't say that they were. All we're saying is that these products are legitimate medical and safety supplies. So you've been issued this $880 fine. Uh, You're obviously not going to pay that fine. What happens next? Uh, Well, what happens next is I go, um, I I request to sit with the prosecutor and show them all of my evidence. I mean, I'm still open. Um, Basically, as far as I'm concerned, if Toronto Public Health wants to go back on what they told me about them being safety supplies, then I will comply and shut down. Um, If they want to remove that support from the community, it seems to me like it would be hypocritical when they themselves have documented that these products are essential to a healthy sex life right now, but okay. Um, And if the legislation changes, if there's clarification around the legislation, but as it sits right now, medical supplies are allowed and that is what I sell. Um, I mean, it should matter that I sell more than that. Dollarama sells more than canned food and they're allowed to be open. So I don't know why law should be differentially applied to me. How many people would you say um, you've helped through the pandemic? Yeah, oh, no. Do you have a ballpark? Oh, through the hum- hundreds. I mean, when you take into account online um, and in store, yeah, hundreds. And I mean, this is the thing that I think is the most upsetting is people think it's like skeezy people. But an example mm-hmm. um, last week was like an 80 year old, little old, hunched over man in his mask, socially distanced, came in because he can't get an erection anymore and he wants to have an intimate interaction with his wife. And so he's like, help me. Like, how can I? How can I have a satisfying sex life with my wife during quarantine in my senior years? Where else is he going to go? I mean, he's not going to get that kind of support off of Amazon and he needs that support. I mean, mm-hmm. these are like quality of life issues that are significant to people. Um, not to and- not to make light of it, but it seems to be a theme with me today. Uh, all of the good ones are taken. That's what that proves. <laughs> 80. How can I satisfy my wife? I'm 80. Oh, God. Did you give him a... Well, you can't give him a hug. There's no touching or anything. But oh, man, that guy deserves an award. No, I know. A 75-year-old woman came in to buy her first toy. This was before pandemic because she had met somebody and she hadn't had sex she said in something like 20 years since she was widowed and she didn't want to seem her words too thirsty so she needed to come <laughs> in and like basically she's like i need to get my vagina back in shape before i have intimacy oh, with man. the person that i've met and so this is just it these are the people that don't have another real people yeah, they're, yeah exactly they're real people and these are real real products that actually contribute to health and quality of life it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I know you've referenced the CBC a couple of times. Hey, we all pay for the CBC. Let's not uh, kid ourselves. But this has been a more enjoyable uh, broadcasting experience for you, no? Oh, my God. Amazing story. I'm sorry I, I kept you and rambled on, but it was lovely to talk to you, and I'm glad to at least get kind of my side of the story out there now. I, I wish you all the best. I think, you know, when I first was handed this story, I thought, okay, well, let's see if a sex store is uh, an essential service. And I, you won me over. You're a completely charming individual. And uh, we, you might see me darken your door one day. Uh, where is the nookie? It's at College in Ossington, 827 College Street. I wish you the best of luck. And Veronica, thank you so much. And, and good luck with your fight. Anytime. Take care. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you haven't already told your friends we podcast, can you do me a favor? Do me a solid, pass on the information, and hit subscribe wherever you download your podcast. We'll be waiting for you daily. Have yourself a great day. Cheers.